0: Everyone Deserves a Place to Call Home is a collection of stories about people's experiences of homelessness. Funded by the Town of Victoria Park, the project acknowledges that homelessness can be defined in many different ways and affects many different people, and aims to raise awareness because shelter is a basic human right and everyone deserves a place to call home. This is Jonathan's story. Hello, my name is Jonathan. Um, One of the reasons that I'm here is to actually tell my story about being homeless. I'm different in a lot of ways in the fact of uh, being homeless. I actually ended up on the street with my son. At the time being, he was actually 16. But the other difference also is the fact that I am East Coast educated. We're private school. I then went to university, uh, did my degree in science, and then I joined the Royal Australian Navy, um, after several years, I got a medical uh, discharge from the Navy for a, a busted shoulder. Um, but after several years in regards to running around Australia with a lot of stuff, um, I ended up jumping into the IT bandwagon and became a engineer. So uh, putting together a lot of hardware, putting together a lot of software and developing systems right throughout the East Coast. I worked for Telstra for well over six years. Uh, doing a lot of LAN and WAN stuff in the early days of computing. Uh, then I got into project management, and I became uh, one of the uh, one of Sydney's um, determined project management so I used to jump in and uh, change things around as as required. Uh, contracts became a little scarce, so I moved up to Brisbane. Then again moved to Darwin looking for some mining work and uh, then found myself without a contract uh, as the uh, IT work within the Northern Territory completely dried up. I was paying 550 bucks in rent, um, had no work and then uh, had to go and live in my car. And my son at the time being was 16, came to live with me and the two of us. Um, ended up running around Darwin, 34 degrees during the day, 33 degrees at night with all the mosquitoes. So it wasn't exactly a nice easy going uh, with everything happening. Uh, then I got a job and um, I was an operations manager at one of the companies there. Um, my, I would drive to work, give the keys to the car to my son, go and have a shower at work at 7.30 in the morning because they had showers there and uh, then start work and usually work from seven thirty eight o'clock right through to 5.36 when my son had come and picked me up. He didn't have a driver's licence but we had no choice because we had nowhere else to go. Um, I was into my eighth week at the actual company itself and I had a bit of a breakdown. Now I told HR that I was actually still homeless She told the general manager, the general manager told my boss, my boss hauled me in and (laughs) drew me over the coals. How in the world can you be homeless and be a manager in charge of seven people? Trying to explain that I come to work, put on my suit and showered and changed and everything was fine, then left the place and all we did was live in the car. A week later I got sacked. So we took all we had uh, that could fit in the car and it was a toss of a coin whether we drove east or west and it was go west, young man. So we did. We travelled from Darwin all the way down to Perth and we joined the crowd down here in Rockingham um, that were actually homeless. So I'd spent 18 months in Darwin at the time being for being homeless. Um, But what I want to talk about is not the actual time itself that we were homeless for because my my episodes are very much the same as everybody else who was living on the street and living in a car. Rough sleeping is not great. There's a lot of things that do happen to you in regards to, you know, the um, the boggy boys, whatever you want to call them. they come and throw bottles at you, uh, cause problems. I got beat up twice twice. Um, but there's a lot of things that happen while you're actually homeless that cause a lot of trauma. But what actually happens is that while you're in those circumstances, my perceived emotion on it is that the body actually holds itself together. And as the body realises that you're in a trauma situation, it actually encompasses or cocoons you to a state that you become... uh, sanctified day in, and day out. And it's not until you actually get into another house or get off the street that the body says, oh, that was a relief, and it lets go. Now, in my case, um, what actually happened was that I remember vividly the lady actually uh, showed me uh, one of the houses I was looking at. And uh, we'd been on the street for 32 months come the time that we went, December 2014. And I said, this is nice, you know, can we put an application form in to take it? And she said, you don't have to, it's yours. Uh, I just collapsed to my knees and cried. It was an emotion that I remember vividly in that I'd finally found a place for my son and myself. Being a parent and being responsible for your kids and taking them through two and a half, nearly three years of actually living on the street was an emotional drain to the stage where we were seriously suicidal. When you are homeless, the statistics as far as suicide becomes a daily happening. It is an emotion and a problem that runs dramatically through those that are actually living on the street. But getting on with it, what actually happened after um, we got a house? Um, we moved in, it was a Department of Housing complex, so I moved into that. Um, they had put my son into uh, the Salvation Army complex in Northbridge at the time being, mostly because of the fact that He tried suicide, tried to hang himself uh, several weeks beforehand so they thought to keep him away from me for the time being, try and get him some a bit more stability. Unfortunately, the stability with him didn't work out. They actually exited him uh, after three months so he moved straight back in with me. Um, It wasn't long until I started to have serious uh, esophageal problems. They actually discovered in 2015 that I had uh, very close to esophageal cancer and that's one of those that you basically stick your head between your legs and kiss your bum goodbye. Uh, There's not much recovery from esophageal cancer at all. So in 2017, they operated, um, they cut my esophagus completely out and cut my stomach up and moved my stomach up to my throat. Uh, The problem that I had after that was that my stomach just didn't work. There's a nerve that runs directly into the stomach called the vagus nerve. Now, with that cut, my stomach was unable to digest the food, so I had what was called gastroparesis. And then you combine the gastroparesis with diabetes and your sugar levels are absolutely all over the place. And it was very, very hard to make changes and combine what's going on. Anyway, moving on from that, uh, the second major operation I had was in 2017 with an MRI done on my neck after realizing I had a few problems on my body as far as uh, touch and sensation was concerned they discovered that I had a crushed spinal cord um, in two places. One was completely crushed with very minimal um, flow through the actual cord itself and the other one was a bit of a bump. So the only way to actually fix it was to do what's called a laminectomy. Now, it was 2017 they actually discovered it, but it was only just before COVID closed everything down that they actually put me into the operating theatre in 2020. So, again, um, back on the table, where they cut me open the back of the neck, twenty-three staples to put it all back together again. So they really ate me up. They got the drill out for C five and C six and hammered away with the drill to separate the actual uh, bones themselves to allow the spinal cord to expand. And they took the lamina out from C three right through to C seven. So it was quite a major operation. It was about two and a half, three hours on the table for that. Um, And then I found after the actual operation that my uh, sensation had deteriorated quite rapidly um, along with being a diabetic, um, what is called sock and glove uh, sensational loss or neuropathy, um, peripheral neuropathy, which I then suffered from. So my legs and my arms um, were losing sensation completely, so I couldn't feel anything. I lost a lot of muscle tone within my hands and my legs as well. Um, So the basis of those two major operations that I'd had, in order to align the fact as to they came from living on the street. It's obviously very hard to get a doctor to compute that such medical evidence is the fact of living rough. But in instance, it's very hard not to actually suggest that the physical deformities that actually occur to a person after being um, housed from rough sleeping. Um, is not something that that you could not look at. Uh, My third major operation, and again, I was very, very lucky in this case that it actually did come up, and I had a heart attack on April the seventh, 2022, this year. Um, Bit of a tone in the chest, didn't know what it was, but it was different to the other pains that I get, so I went up to the hospital. Uh, My son decided that I had to go, I must go. So I did and then discovered that, yes, I had had a heart attack. Um, So in Rocky Hospital, they booked me in to go to Fiona Stanley and I had to wait a couple of days. In the presence of all the people in Rockingham Hospital, I ended up having a diabetic coma when my sugar levels completely dropped and I was very lucky the nurses came round and saw me flopping on the bed Um, but my sugars were that low, they had to put gel packs into me. I had had several diabetic comas beforehand. In one case, the ambulance had to come to the house. In other cases, the ambos um, did actually fix me up. But this was actually one that I'd had in hospital itself. If I had not gone through with the surgery, the heart surgery for uh, after the heart attack, They have said quite clearly that I would have had a major and would have died. But it's just one of those things where you've been lucky. And even as far as my esophageal cancer is concerned, it was either a matter of actually having the operation for that or, again, esophageal cancer would have taken my life. Um, As far as my neck was concerned, either have the operation or I would have been paralysed from the chest down. Now, the heart surgery in going on for this year is still causing a few problems, nothing major that um, I can't uh, deal with. But I did have four vessels that were completely cleaned out, Um, more than likely because of the fact that my diabetes was unregulated and uncontrolled. And that was more than likely because of living on the street you were dealing with the fact of trying to feed yourself, feed my son. Uh, We got fed three times a week by particular uh, services and agencies. Salvation Army in Rockingham was one for Tuesday lunch. Um, Thursday nights was soup van and Sunday nights was soup van. Any other time we wanted food, we had to go and get takeaway Uh, I did have a small burner kit, so we did and were able to cook uh, tea, boil water for cups of tea, cups of coffee, um, and everybody pitched in where you could. But the basis of what actually happens to a person after they are housed from the trauma of being homeless is actually quite traumatic. One of my friends who was uh, on the street with myself, an Indigenous guy, Mort, and Morty was... um, a diabetic as well, uh, was controlling his quite su- uh, sustainably. But a year and a half after he actually got off the street, um, they ended up having to sever one of his legs from that diabetic control. Uh, six months later, he lost the other leg. So now after he spent nearly two years living in his car, um, 14, 15 months with us at the time being, He's now legless. Uh, Other guys that I've known that have actually had problems, George has got a major problem with one of his hands to do with arthritis. Um, We lost Brendan uh, from liver malfunctions. Um, There are many others that have had physical and substantial problems to do with the body that have actually gone on and um, been set up through the medical system. Uh, My instance, if I have to actually draw to that, in that having three major operations and then again with the other minor operations that go along with it and then the hospital visits, I'd have to say that I would have cost the West Australian health system well over $1 million. Now. Instead of actually spending a million dollars on one person as far as their physical health is concerned, twenty-thirty thousand dollars to ensure the fact that they have a house and the government saves a hell of a lot of money in doing something quite substantially within that particular facet. The the idea that there are physical problems and traumatic problems of a person who leaves the street And I'm talking here mostly about the rough sleepers, um, with no disrespect to those who are determined as being homeless and end up being couch surfing or actually have um, housing problems. Those who are rough sleepers endure a lot of problems physically and mentally moreover than almost anybody else. Now, your rough sleeper basis, as far as those that are determined are homeless, there's got to be about 10%. Um, in the fact that at the moment while we actually go through the exits of COVID, the problems that have originated from housing means that we've actually had a very severe increase in rough sleepers right around Perth itself. And the numbers on the streets at the moment are nearly 20% greater than what they were nearly two years ago. When the um, Perth Council did a stat quite recently, they were astounded to find the figures of the number of people sleeping on the streets uh, just in the Perth CBD it was around the 140 to 150 mark. Now, you've got to say that in that particular count, there are many, many others that would have drawn themselves away from being counted and would not have been found. So you'd have to say within Perth CBD there could be at least 250-odd people that are actually sleeping rough right around the whole Perth CBD. Then you take into account uh, those rough sleeping in the suburbs and you're adding well and truly eight to 900 people at the moment uh, right around the actual Perth uh, area itself. You go north to Geraldton, you go south down to um, Albany um, and take into account those there that are actually rough sleepers and the numbers present today are quite substantial. And in, it, in actual fact, every one of them is going to go through some sort of physical or some sort of mental damage while they're actually sleeping rough on the streets. It is therefore, I believe, a necessity to look at the idea of introducing something to do with um, assisting them through the Um, health system because if they don't, each one of them is going to end up with um, making themselves present at given hospitals and it's going to cost the government lots and lots of money as far as um, fixing the physical and the mental problems. The mental problems, if I can tip on that, are not dealt with very sincerely as far as coming out of homelessness is concerned. We go through some traumatic times and I'm still uh, remembering very vividly the times that I actually got beat up. Um, I got punched, I got kicked, I got belted, I had bottles thrown at me, I had rocks thrown at me, um, I got um, cursed at, I got sworn at and called nothing nothing more than a homeless bum. Um, And considering the fact that you'd sit down at a... um, a shopping plaza and look at the fact that everybody around you was going home to a house, it was very hard to not just meld in because people didn't know that you are actually homeless if you are actually sitting down. You don't look like the general homeless people. And it's not until you actually fade into the, the sunlight and you know, pull up your car, where you are going to sleep with the rest of the other guys that are in in the uh, community that we developed, that anyone would actually turn around and say, you're a bunch of homeless bums. But we got together as a community. It's like drawing the uh, wagon trains together. We pulled the cars in, we set them up and that's where we went to sleep. But we still got disturbed. We still had strangers walking in through the middle of the night and either yelling abuse at us or just driving around and driving out again, the the aspect of trying to go to sleep at night um, became actually quite traumatic for us where we were not able to sleep properly through the night. And the majority of the time, a lot of the actual guys and girls would sleep through the day and more than likely stay awake at night because the nighttime was when they came out to actually disturb us or physically uh, do something to us. So your mental aspect in reference to that is quite disturbed. You take that with you when you actually leave the street and it's not something that you can deal with on um, a given basis immediately. It takes – I've been off the street now for pretty much seven years – and I'm still disturbed today to actually talk about the sessions that I went through where I was actually beaten up. If I started to get into it and started to remember the times that we were beaten up and the failing part as a father, I know very vividly that I'd be in tears and the trauma associated with bringing it back is, is pretty bad But it's not just me, there are several others. I know one guy um, had two teenage boys living in a car in Fremantle and he was in there for well over six months. Um, They suffered a lot in their ideas. He made the papers and then people started to come forward and offer them places to live and they got them off the streets that way but there are a lot of others as far as single fathers single mothers listen, the mothers as far as concerned how in the world they are able to sustain life look after their kids and live in a car i really don't know it is such a trauma for them and after usually being exited because of domestic violence then going to live on the street that that's something that needs dealing with immediately we are not as a society and community looking at the problems that are going on and offering suggestions as to how in the world we can actually deal with stuff like that. So for me, I'm still going on in the basis of actually trying to uh, trying to get my life sorted out. My um, son and I have moved quite recently into a two-bedroom place, so the after-effects of living in department housing in a one-bedroom where my son was actually sleeping on the couch for nearly two or three years um, is all gone. We're trying to get our lives sorted out and set up. But I've got to say, in, in essence of finishing off, if I had not been homeless for three years, would I have needed the... Uh, esophageal uh, removal that I lost my esophagus to the cancer side of it? Um, Would I have needed the laminectomy as far as my neck was concerned and I've got severe muscle wasting all down my body? Would I have needed the heart surgery where my diabetes uh, became so uh, uncontrolled through the three years of living on the street that I was well, I actually did have a heart attack, so they tell me. But I would have more than likely died uh, had I not walked into the hospital on that particular Sunday um, at 2am. So let me put it to you that if you know of people that are actually living on the street, it's not just picking them up and putting them in four walls and a roof. The sustainment of help and community service Runs for well over two years after that because of what you don't see that they've been through and what you don't see that they have actually had trouble with. You may not know and they may not tell you. The instance of some of the traumas that people have been through is so dramatic that when they get off the street, they shut up about it. A lot of them don't come forward and a lot of them don't talk about the uh, times that they live rough. It's an embarrassment. It is very much in the fact that we're not taking hold of a particular problem within our society that is the necessity to deal with as we've got so many people in circumstances that they can't control, that has seen them lose their housing and they have nowhere else to go. If they have a car, they move into the car. If they don't have a car, they move into the street. And living on the street is the worst thing that can happen to anybody. Thank you for listening. Centre for Stories is a not-for-profit organisation with charitable status. Our team is small and nimble, and we love what we do. To help us to continue to support diverse storytellers, consider a small donation. You can donate at centerforstories.com.